You know, a parable that gave me fits for years is the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, which is where we're going to be focusing our attention today. For years, I kind of beat my head against that parable to no avail. I mean, its tone is incredibly urgent, and its conclusion really is quite shocking. But it's therefore just seems so mundane and esoteric and candidly tough to preach compellingly. Be prepared. You don't want to get caught without oil for your lamp or wax for your board or gas for your Ford. And if you know what I'm talking about, you're welcome for the earworm. If you do not, it's that you're better off. Just don't even ask. <laughs> See, you, you, you will not be able to think about anything else. But no, don't think about pink elephants. Anyway, something I was witness to 13 years ago gave me at least some profounder insight into what I believe we can take away from this parable, what's at the heart of what Jesus was saying, and there's nothing mundane or, or esoteric about it at all. It's actually pretty gritty and embodied. My epiphany came when Lauren and I arrived in May 2010 on the campus of DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana, to attend a graduation. We could feel the sexual tension immediately. I mean, it was palpable. And it wasn't because we'd stepped into the middle of more than a thousand alcohol and who knows what else fueled 20-somethings already well into a week-long party, though I'm pretty sure that may have exacerbated it. It was because for a young couple whose graduation we were there to witness, student leaders in DePaul University's InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, their graduation preceded their wedding weekend by just two weeks. And they were really, really ready to be married, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Early in their relationship, they'd made a vow to each other and to God on a night when they stopped to wash each other's feet. And then they had stuck resolutely with it. Even during the last days of their engagement, when a lot of walls come down, much as they desired, they would neither consummate their relationship nor would they live together before they were married. Many of their friends at this university actually questioned their sanity. But as it turns out, that decision is a very wise one on a bunch of different levels. Despite prevailing cultural assumptions, couples who cohabit before marriage tend to be less satisfied in their marriages <laughs> and significantly more likely to divorce than couples who don't live together before they're married. The New York Times in 2019 also cited a study, actually they commissioned a study, that those who also wait for marriage to enjoy sex do even better. But there's another big upside to waiting that sheds some light on today's gospel reading, a story about a wedding. 
This parable is about the time between Jesus' coming to betroth his church, us, and his coming to marry her. It's about a future event. We know that because of its beginning with the word then. Some stories Jesus tells about the kingdom are now stories. What shall we say about the kingdom uh, of heavens is like? And to what shall we compare it? It's like a treasure hidden in a field. That's the access we have to it right now. Some of Jesus' stories, like this one, are not yet stories. They're about his future returning reign. It's the tension that we live in. The kingdom of heaven is both now and not yet. Our lazy brains don't really like paradox. Two things that seem contradictory but are yet simultaneously true. But that's the reality of the kingdom of the heavens. It's one of the things that frames Redeemer's shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. To proclaim and promote the gospel because we know that future eternal lives are at stake. And that one thing, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Thanks be to God. But also, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors today. Because loving our neighbors in this life matters to God and his now kingdom. Not simply as projects, but whether they follow us in faith or not. Okay, so back to this parable. I, I'm going to try to walk through it quickly. Then the kingdom of heavens, it says in verse 1, then the kingdom of heavens will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Jesus is, Jesus is the king and bridegroom in the story. He's betrothed or engaged. He's a betrothed or engaged king soon to be a married king. His, his betrothed bride is the people who put their trust in him from every tribe and race and nation, the church. He came the first time a little over 2,000 years ago and paid the dowry for this life with his blood. And he will come a second time to marry her and consummate with her and she will live in his love and joy forever. The Bible isn't prudish. Marriage and sex are constant biblical pictures of eternity. Jesus came into the world to take a wife, to give her pleasures that will make every other pleasure passe. And he paid for the bride with his life. And he's at work now, by his Holy Spirit and his word, purifying and beautifying. Did you, did, you, did you catch that in the collect for today? He's at work by his Holy Spirit, purifying and, and, and beautifying her for her joy and pleasure and for his. St. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians Chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the price he paid. And why? That he might sanctify her. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The virgins in this story represent those who profess to be followers of Jesus. They're going out to meet the bridegroom. We shouldn't stumble too much over the fact that in this parable, these ten aren't the bride. Or over the fact that the bride never makes an appearance. We shouldn't get lost in the particulars, but instead consider the larger point. Here, the church is pictured as the ones who are there to eagerly meet the bridegroom when he comes. And by the way, this works on two levels. I must say this. He was also speaking to the people of Israel we've grown tired of waiting for the coming of the Messiah. But he's speaking to the church as well. So for us, this is ultimately a parable about how we, the bride of Christ, should wait wisely to eagerly meet her betrothed. Verses 2 through 4. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. I don't think the percentages here, half and half, are significant. I, like 50% of the church is foolish. That may, in fact, be true. But the numbers are kind of incidental. What's crucial is that some were neg neglectful and foolish, and some were intentional and wise. Regardless, all ten had been invited to one thing only, to welcome the bridegroom with light when he comes, that's their job, their calling, to be ready. The means appointed for that calling were unbelievably straightforward, oil and lamps. Their responsibility was to use these means for the work they'd been given, to give light when the bridegroom comes. But five of them didn't take their calling seriously, and they neglected the only means by which they could fulfill it. They took no oil, only lamps. Their one job was to provide light. And they had lamps without oil. Metaphorically, the outward form of religion, but no saving faith in Jesus Christ, no Holy Spirit power. They lacked the very source of power necessary to fulfill the point of their position, light. Their foolishness was to think that the mere form of a religious lamp would su suffice. Or perhaps that the power to light a lamp could simply be borrowed at the, at the last minute, when in fact it cannot be borrowed at all. Moving on to verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. There are two points of significance here, I think. First, Jesus said in advance right here that his coming would be delayed. But even so, this has been a stumbling block for 2,000 plus years. I mean, St. Saint, Saint Peter was dealing with it already in his second letter in St. Peter, or in 2 Peter, um, chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. Scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And here's the beautiful why. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Secondly, both the wise and the foolish virgins fell asleep as they waited for the long overdue bridegroom. That's just a part of the normal rhythm of life, but there's a crucial difference between the two. While the foolish virgin slept, any readiness to follow the bridegroom was depleted, consumed by time and flame. The wise virgin's lamps burned too, but their readiness to follow wasn't depleted. The wise were called wise because they're prepared for the bridegroom's delay. The foolish expect to meet the groom too, but are totally unprepared for his delay. And the bridegroom is a long time. Verse 6, but at midnight there was a shout. Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. This is a parallel with what we read from 1 Thessalonians today. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The shout goes out, he's here. Go, go meet him with light. Let your lamps burn brightly as you go. That's the then Jesus was talking about. And what we're about to see in the rest of this parable is a sober warning to be ready. Verses 7 through 9. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. They've neglected the very means appointed for doing their duty, and not even the shout awakens them to their stupidity. Not at first, anyway. They trimmed their empty and useless lamps. And then they asked the impossible. Give us from your oil. The fact that the five wise virgins won't give them any oil is, I believe, meant to teach the impossibility of borrowing faith. To teach the impossibility of borrowing the power of the Holy Spirit. The impossibility of borrowing obedience and faithfulness. It's too late. Every one bears her own load. So in desperation, the foolish virgins run for the impossible. Instant end-time obedience. Instant end-time faith. But when the bridegroom returns, it's too late. Then the jarring words of verses 10 through 12, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came along also, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he, answered, but he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. At this point, I have to speculate because my knowledge of first century Jewish culture is just 
candidly, too thin for certainty. But common sense tells me that this last part of the story would have seemed startling even for first century hearers. Conceivably, their marriage customs may have barred these latecomers' entrance to the feast, but the bridegroom saying, I don't know you, seems over the top. And here, I think, is the real point of this parable, which Jesus makes by contrast and not by comparison, by disanality, not by analogy. In the world of everyday wedding feasts, not being ready when the bridegroom comes, though socially awkward, doesn't immediately <coughs> exclude you from the joy of the celebration. But not so if we're talking about the eternal wedding feast to come. When that bridegroom finally comes to take his bride to that ultimate wedding feast, which will be the occasion of all true joy and celebration for all eternity, if you're not ready, not known, you won't be allowed into that feast at all. That's how the kingdom of the heavens, Jesus is saying. That's, that's how it is in the kingdom of the heavens, Jesus is saying. So you've got to be ready. You dare not risk not being ready. The stakes are just too high. You don't want to hear those awful words, and you don't have to. Because Jesus gives us one command. Verse 13 says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch doesn't mean to occasionally crack the blinds. Watch means be alive, be alert to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he gives now. Watch means to use any and all means God has given you to know him and love him and trust him and desire his coming to long for it. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 describes it as, as panting for God, as a deer pants for water. Not what that old bumper sticker said, Jesus is coming back, quick, look busy. Jesus wants us to wait. Jesus wants us to want the coming of his kingdom more than we want anything else in this life. I know it's little to ask. And... It's a lot to ask, but it's the thing that he asks here, which takes us back to DePaul University in May 2010, and the palpable tension I mentioned earlier. I mentioned earlier the years of waiting wisely had this couple truly hungering, desiring, panting for consummation, and you know what? For them, being alert, watching, was not a problem. Because even with all the distractions of life around them, their hearts, their minds, their bodies, and their behaviors were focused on that one thing. They were not thinking of, they, they were thinking about it all the time. They couldn't not think about it. They wanted it more than they wanted anything else in life. For most of us, though, watching is a problem. We get so caught up in, in, in immediacy and pressures and activities of this life, many of us, uh, or many of most of, many or most of them that are good, but can also be deadly distractions from the reality that we were not made for the imminence of this life only. Our future is mind-blowing 
consummation as it was for this couple. As a pastor, if I could give you one thing today, if I could give you anything today, it would be to trade in a faith that is fragile or boring or tentative for a faith that can endure anything. To trade in a weak and fading love for God, for God's kingdom, for a love that runs deep and strong. To trade in a, a commitment that's divided and distracted for one that's single-minded and focused. And to trade in a casual interest in the eternal life God has promised for a raging hunger. But I can't. I can't get it to you. Fortunately, millennia of practice in the church has us heading into a season, four weeks, that are given entirely to them. In fact, that's the point of Advent and why we're now starting to read these readings about the coming of Christ. With intentionality, building a hunger, a desire, a longing for the coming of Christ in his kingdom, both at Christmas and when he returns again to take his bride. Please, just giving you a heads up, pregame speech. Please be intentional. Plan now for how you'll prepare and talk about it with your family or your friends. Here are some of the means that the church has historically held on to. Fasting. Nothing builds hunger, literally and metaphorically, like regular fasting. Just, if you're not accustomed to it, fast for 24 hours. And give yourself to prayer. If you're a Christmas music junkie, try fasting from Christmas music until December 25th like the church does. Another way that they've practiced that is, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm going to get a firm talking to you. She is a Christmas music junkie. <laughs> you can go ahead and do that. Now. Right. I will. Give yourself to charity and good works. Listen, we, we have the opportunity to participate in a very low-cost, low-risk way, feeding some of the residents of Harbor House next weekend for Thanksgiving. I wrote about that in the email. The way that that came about is uh, it boggles. Uh, and I'll, I hope to tell you about that in a couple of minutes. Make some devotional commitments. I can make some suggestions. Our, our bishop is doing a weekly Bible study on Tuesday mornings during, during um, and, and I'll get that links to that to you. Free up your schedules for morning prayer. Super easy to join us online. Do it, do it just during Advent. And they've also done it historically by praying. Praying for their neighbors, praying for their holiness. But we can pray for who we will invite into our new and permanent home someday. More than anything, don't neglect it or take it by chance. That's what Advent is for. Be intentional and wait wisely in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.